0: Okay, everybody, let's go ahead and move back to our seats, and uh, we'll, uh, just a, re- a reminder, we have 10 spots left for the men's retreat, so we want to fill those up, and uh, looking forward to that time, and hard to believe that we've got one more s- Sunday of, you know, kind of summer, so to speak. Uh, we've got some, some students going back to school already, some feel like they've been in school Forever, and never got a break some are starting school in the fall right and uh, so anyway um, let's uh, have our ushers come we're going to receive our offering and uh, Jerry would you mind just offering a word of thanks to the Lord for his generosity to us (coughs) so Ken is ministering for Long Island Youth Mentoring today at Christ Community Church in East Islip and uh, others are away I think uh, I heard Matt and Andy are suffering in Mexico for a friend's wedding. So I need friends like that, you know. I don't know about you guys, but I'd like some friends like that. So um, so I need to just check something with those in our group here that are a lot younger than me, which is almost all of you. Um, do you guys know who Laurel and Hardy are? heard the name. (laughs) All right, well, Laurel and Hardy, for most of us, we remember they were you know, they were a very popular uh, comedy team back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And uh, I don't know if they got into the 60s or not. There's actually a pretty good movie out that was made in 2018 where those two guys, the actors, they look like Laurel and Hardy, and they, their characters are really well-developed, and they had a very close friendship through their professional career that went through the what you would expect, typical times of difficulty and strain on their relationship. But one of the things that they would do in every one of the routines is they had the kind of routines like the Three Stooges and all those kinds of guys where they have those pratfalls and stuff where you, you're sure they're going to get hurt the way they act with each other. And one of the things that they would say uh, w- uh, Stan Laurel was a tall, skinny guy, and Oliver Hardy was a big, uh, heavy set guy. And uh, I was trying to think of the politically correct words to say. And, and so Stan Laurel was always messing things up, and Oliver Hardy was always blaming Stan Laurel for messing things up. And one of the classic lines, almost at the end of all of their comedy routines or skits, was uh, Oliver would turn to Stan, and he would say, "This is another fine mess you've gotten us into." And Stan would get this wimpy look on his face and sad look, and whoa, whoa, whoa. and and then he'd say, "What do you have to say for yourself?" And uh, I couldn't help but think about that in light of this passage in James chapter four that we're going to look at today. And I want to say something, uh, both as a disclaimer and an apology. I have no idea why I had this inspiration to do this series through the book of James. Other than I guess it was a blame it on God inspiring me to do it. But when I've been going through these verses like the one last week or a couple of weeks ago on taming the tongue, it's like, why do I have to talk about those kinds of things? Because that means I have to, you know, teachers have a stricter judgment. So I'm trying to be careful that I not just tell you what to do and then not live it that way. But that's what this passage is like too. So anyway, if we could uh, pull it up, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. It says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now, in that first verse, what's the implication that we get as we look at that passage? The implication is they're fighting. The implication is they're quarreling with each other. The implication is there's bad blood in their relationships. Not that any of us know of any church like that ever. It's not describing us at all. And, but and none of us have ever had that experience before. That's really not the truth. Some of us have. And the reality is, as you look in the New Testament... Almost every writer in the New Testament speaks to the problem of relationships. You know what, they, what somebody said one time. A church was a really good idea that God had in mind until he decided to add people to it. And then as soon as he added people, that's when the problem started. And so we've got a situation where there's obviously a lot of problems and a lot of conflict going on in this church or in this group of people. So, verse 2 says, You desire and do not have, so you murder, not literally, but figuratively. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You ever heard the word hedonism? In fact, I think there's even a trip that you can take, a hedonistic one, hedonistic two. And hedonism is basically passions. It's like, whatever I can do to satisfy my passions for me, selfishly, for me, and no one else, it doesn't really matter if you're in the room or not, this is for me and whatever I want. So you spend it on your passions. You spend it on you. And basically he's saying, because of that, our prayers are going to go unanswered because of your attitude. So verse 4, Imagine me standing up in front of you and saying this morning, you are an adulterous people. Because that's what he does. James says, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is is no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. He has high expectations for our gatherings is what he's basically saying. We have very high expectations here. But he gives more grace, and therefore he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, go home. I mean, he's just ripping on them. Adulterous people, filled with passion. Then he says in verse 8 draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Verse 11 do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or sister or judges his brother or sister speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to judge your neighbor? So the issue is that all of us, at one time or another, have probably put ourselves into a place of judgment. And all of us, have been guilty of doing what verse 11 says not to do, which is do not speak evil of a brother or sister. All of us have had something that we have had to say that represents a complaint or some kind of grumbling comment about another person. And so James is dealing with a situation that he talked about in chapter 3, which is false wisdom. False wisdom that, is sensual, that's devilish, that looks to, to, to do what the devil does, which is to rob, steal, and destroy. And he's saying, as he begins chapter 4, here's proof of it. You guys are fighting like cats and dogs because of the problems in your relationships with each other. So the point of this passage is this. If you're going to get together and fight, what's the point of getting together? Which begs the question, what is the point of getting together? Now, I don't think, well, I don't think, I, I know that in the last years that we've been Crossroads Church, we haven't had situations necessarily where we have fought like cats and dogs, but we know that we've had situations where there's been conflict. And we've, we know there's been situations where we've worked at trying to get through the conflict and through the difficulties and all the stuff that's happened. But When we are getting together, we need to remember why we are getting together. We're not just getting together to work through conflict. We're getting together for a much higher purpose than that. And the word adulterous, when James says you are an adulterous people, gives us a clue about why we're getting together. Because adultery implies that a groom, a a husband or a wife, have their attention on someone else other than their husband or wife. And so if they have their attention on someone else, and James is saying you're an adulterous people, what is he implying about their attention? Where's their focus? Their focus is on something else other than God. Their focus is on something else other than hosting the presence of God or the presence of the Holy Spirit in the middle of their situation. So the word adulterous gives us a clue because our gathering is about honoring Jesus. Jesus, who is described in the, in the Scriptures in the New Testament as the bridegroom of the church. So if He's the bridegroom, who's the bride? We are. His church. We are the bride. That's the picture. That's been the picture that goes through all of Scripture. That God represents the bridegroom and His people represent the bride. Jesus comes along as the bridegroom and He's seeking for a church that's without spot or wrinkle is what Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 5. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, famous German pastor who was killed by the Nazis, said in his book Life Together that we meet one another as bringers of the gospel. There's really no other point to getting together the way we do. Oh, sure, some churches are specializing in the individual experience, but the natural trajectory of that is simply staying at home. The acoustics are sometimes better, and you don't have to put on clothes. No, we don't gather to enjoy our individuality in the same room. We meet each other as bringers of the gospel. We don't come with blinders on and try to pretend like, Oh, good, I don't have to know who's here. I take the blinders off and I think, how am I supposed to come with the gospel that I'm supposed to share? That's the picture that's in this passage. The priority is to receive, to check with God's plan first, to check our heart relationship with Jesus, and then adapt ourselves to the template that He's laid out for the morning and for the time we come together. Let me make this statement that I think is really the biggest point of all. God is infinitely more interested in our relationship to Christ, the shape of our relationships, and the gospel message that's coming from us than He is in our own personal comfort. He's way more interested in His plan and His purpose through you and me than our own personal comfort. Now, as we look through this passage, I want you to think about a wedding atmosphere. How many of you have ever been to a sad wedding? Anybody been to a sad funeral? You know, I've done lots of weddings and funerals. And if I have the choice, I would do a wedding anytime. Because it doesn't matter how ugly the bride looks. Everybody there knows that she's the most beautiful person in the room. It doesn't matter what kind of doofus the the groom is. Is that a word? It doesn't matter how clumsy he seems. There's nothing like a wedding when the bride's walking down the aisle and you see that bride make contact with the bridegroom's eyes. And at that moment, there's nobody else in the room. You all know what I'm talking about? I did a wedding my very first wedding it was with a young couple that probably, you know, if I was doing it again now with what I know, I probably wouldn't have married them. But they were young and they wanted to be married and so I said, "Okay, well, I'll do the wedding and and uh there were a lot of problems. I mean, he 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 was he didn't have the highest IQ in the world, and you know you guys don't know who these people are, so I can tell you this. Uh, this is all I'll tell you. Kathy's getting nervous because I always start doing this, and she's wondering what are you going to tell them. This is all I'll say. This girl had terrible body odor, and I'm like, I got to talk about this in counseling. Like, you know, you need to. And before I got into it, he said, you know, one of the things I wanted to tell you about, and I don't even know why he told me. He says, I don't have a sense of smell. I'm like, great, you guys are perfect for each other. This is wonderful. I mean, God designed all of this. This is great. So we do the wedding, and here they are. I mean, they were in love. They they didn't care about anybody else in the room. And after the wedding... I had one well-meaning family member come up to me. They'd gone off to the reception in the other part of the building. And this well-meaning family member comes up and says, hey, are you sure they should be married? Did you, did you counsel them? Did you, didn't you think Don't you think that they're too young to get married and they shouldn't do this and shouldn't do that? And I said, you know, well, you've got a problem because they're married and they need you to support them right now rather than fight against them. So why don't you stop talking to me and go into that room and celebrate with them what they just committed to. Now I was thinking about that when I was thinking about this passage this week because I think in a lot of ways that's what we do with the church. All of us I think have been guilty at one time or another of going to the Lord and saying, God, are are you sure about the people you're inviting into your church? Like, are you sure about this relationship that you're creating? I mean, did you really talk to them first before you invited them to join the church? And I think his response to us is basically the same as mine was. Why don't you quit talking about it and why don't you go support them as much as you can? Because they're part of my family. They're part of the bride. In this passage, if we can put it back up on the screen stuff, in verses 1 through 3 where James talks about ask the question what causes quarrels what causes fights is it not this your passions verse 3 says you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions which implies that when we're asking for prayer to receive an answer to prayer always should be corporate it means that we can receive individual answers to prayer But it's always for the benefit of, if I'm blessed by God, you get blessed too. It's always flowing to another person. If I'm blessed by God, my neighbor gets blessed. That's what happens if I'm asking with the right motivation. But in this description, there's tons of static in the atmosphere. It's like having a wedding rehearsal, having a wedding where people are sniping and arguing with each other and taking attention away from the bride and groom at the front of the church. There's all this static in the atmosphere. And I have a question. As James describes this, where would you say Jesus is in this mess? And if you've ever been in a situation, and I know some of you have, unfortunately, where you're in a church where there's church wars going on, it's hard to find Jesus in the middle of all that mess. If you know what I mean. And sometimes what needs to happen is somebody needs to stop and just say, you know what, I wonder if Jesus left the room in the midst of this situation. He gave Himself for His church. And I want to remind you of what He said in Ephesians 5, what Paul said, and I know VJ's missional community just covered this passage, but it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her and have have having cleansed her by washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish James is setting before us a basic question is it your aim in life to submit to the will of God Or is it your aim in life to to gratify your own desires for the pleasures of this world? And his warning is, his warning is that if if the pleasure is the policy of your life, then the result will be strife, hatred, and division for each other. We have to lay down our self-interest for the sake of one another for this to work. the consequences as james describes it of a pleasure dominated life is it's first of all it sets men and women at each other's throats second it drives men and women to shameful deeds of envy and jealousy because you have something i want and i can't have and finally a final consequence is a craving for pleasure that actually shuts the door to prayer because God won't answer those kinds of prayers. Now, it doesn't mean that pleasure is wrong, but we need to be checking what our motives are when we're asking God to give us something. When we're asking God to benefit us, it's always for the purpose of benefiting His church and benefiting others around us. So, that's what James talks about next, in verses 4-7. through If we can put those up there. You adulterous people, now go on to the next verses there. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Friendship with the world implies there's a connection. And the static in the atmosphere is caused by a bad connection because we're hooking up with the wrong system. The world system is a system that will destroy us. Heaven system is a system that will bring us life. And this is a contrast between the world system and heaven's system, or heaven's government. The world system is dog-eat-dog. What's in it for me? Me first. Hung up on selfish motives. Everything is about my benefit. The system under the control and the authority of heaven is different, though, because it's turned upside down. It's a system that allows the model of Jesus... And do you remember what the model of Jesus is that's described in Philippians 2? What did he think about his equality with God when he was sitting in heavenly places with God before he came to earth? Do you remember what it says? He did not consider his equality with God something to grab a hold of. But it says he emptied himself and he became like a man so that he could bring connection to the Father. Our purpose is always about helping people find connection to the Father. And so if we are looking at things from heaven's government, and we are committed to that, that's our passion, and we're not following other things that become idolatry and cause us to commit spiritual adultery, the result will be the benefit of seeing the difference between adulterous people who are selfish and seek to satisfy and satiate selfish motives and a covenantal people who are other minded and always trying to find ways to serve each other and to serve others in, in their relationships. Verses 8 through 10, James gives us the secret to being reconnected. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, I wrestled with those verses. Because I'm looking at those verses and I'm thinking, well, first of all, I don't like being sad. Secondly, I don't like to be uh, gloomy. I don't like it when people are sad and gloomy. I don't like to be around sad and gloomy people. And so I'm like reading these verses, and James is saying, he's saying, let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. That doesn't sound very pastoral to me. You know, for me to say, wipe that smile off your face. Don't you know, put, put your head down. Don't look me in the eye. Gravel, I, I mean, I hate the word shame. I even hate it when we say to the dog, shame on you. I hate that word shame. And I picture in this James is saying, shame on you people. Now I have to think that behind all this, James is not really saying "This is that you should just walk around as gloomy people and dress yourself and in, in, uh, you know, wipe your face with ashes and, and just wear torn and tattered clothing. I don't think James is really saying that. But he's basically, let me put it this way. He's basically saying, don't be so full of yourselves. And if you can't get your act together, it would be a whole lot better if you were a bunch of sad, gloomy people. If that's what it takes for you to get this turned around so you're thinking of other people the way you're supposed to, then do that for a while. Quit being so full of what you have and quit thinking you're the, you're the top of the heap. Like, who was it? Frank Sinatra said it one time. You're not the most important person in the world. Now that doesn't mean that our identity in Christ is not important. That doesn't mean that we don't want His presence with us, walking closely with us daily. But we have to remember that He's the most important in the world. And then we follow into line with that, and we find our place and our identity with Him. In James chapter 1, James told us, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. And if you forget to do that, what's going to happen is you're going to get double-minded. If you start looking to one another for your sources of supply, then you're going to get confused. And so the message from James is, clean the way you talk. Clean up your hands so that your hands are being used for His purpose. Clean up your heart. Make sure there's things being changed from the inside out. And clean up your mind so that you're thinking about other people the way God wants you to think. Probably James was thinking about what his brother said in the Sermon on the Mount. See if you remember how to complete this part of the sermon. Blessed are those who mourn because what? Yeah. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. So the message in these verses is depressing, but the thing is, if they're static in the atmosphere like James describes, it should cause us tremendous grief. I think, I, I think the bigger question is, if Jesus left the room, would we notice? And I think the other question is, if Jesus left the room, would you be the first one to bring it to everybody's attention? I mean, is it more important, is it important enough to us to say, we're spending time on stuff that doesn't matter. Are, are we concerned about, enough about the Holy Spirit being here that we're willing to talk to one another and say, hey, uh, let's stop the arguing, let's stop the fighting, let's stop all of that, because guess what? What we're going to get is nothing, because Jesus just left the room. I mean, picture this. Here's a wedding going on, and somebody sits down, and maybe it's the, the bride's mom, and somebody's sitting in her seat. And the usher says, uh, Ma'am, I'm sorry, you're sitting in the, 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 the mother-in-law's seat. And she says, so I got this seat first. And I want a good view. Well, I'm sorry, but that's not protocol. This is her seat. Well, I'm sorry, but I got here first. If she wanted this seat, she should have got here first. And so all of a sudden we got this argument going on with this usher and the person sitting on the front row. Imagine that going on at a wedding. What's wrong with that picture? Because it's not about the person sitting on the front row. In fact, it's not even for the mother-in-law. I have something to say about that in just a minute. It's about the bride and the groom. And while we're bickering and arguing over stuff that we call church, I wonder if sometimes the Holy Spirit if Jesus has left the room and we're just arguing and bickering over stuff that in the long run... Doesn't really matter. And James says, James says, if that's the case, you've become an adulterous people. So he gives us in verses 11 and 12, if we could put those up, the source of a good connection. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge; he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? James is wanting to reckon with the, us to reckon with the fact that we, each one of us, can create a mess at any given moment. Any one of us could create a problem. But the solution for all of us is there, and that's always to run to the redemption and the freedom that comes through Jesus' death and resurrection. If we create a mess, we go and clean up the mess. If we create a problem with our brother or sister, we take care of the problem. And we remember it's not me first, it's always about Jesus first. That's the royal law. We don't run from conflict, we press in to resolve conflict. We don't run away unless there's Unless our life is in danger because the person we're in conflict with has pulled a knife or something like that. But we exercise the royal law, the royal law, which is often I'll do this when I'm doing premarital counseling. Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? He died for the church. It's one of the funnest experiences. Try it sometime if you ever get to do premarital counseling. Look at a future groom in the eyes and say, are you willing to die for her? I've had a couple of guys take a big gulp like, "Uh, I'm not so sure about that. They never say that, but you can see the look in their eyes like, oh my God, I never thought about that before. That's the royal law. And basically the message of James is the same as a bridegroom, future bridegroom looking at his future bride, the message is the same for us. Are are we willing to die for each other? Are we willing to die for His church? I was listening to something the other day. You know, Ephesians 2 says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What do you... What's significant about a foundation in a building? Can you see the walls? Can you see the ceiling? Can you see the doors? Can you all see the foundation to the building we're on right now? We're standing on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And you know who's underneath the apostles and prophets? Jesus is underneath the apostles and prophets. And anybody that wants to volunteer to be an apostle or prophet, just remember what happened to all the apostles in the early church. Off with their head. All of them were martyred. That's what we're standing on. And are we willing to step into that kind of atmosphere? Because that's what James is describing. It's this royal law. If we break it, it's an infringement, it's an infringement of the prerogative of God. It's what we are to do when we're together. That should be our call. That's our beckoning to being together. Is to learn how to live in a way that we are willing to die for each other because it's for the church. Now, I told you I'd say something about mother-in-laws. I've only had this happen once. But every time when I do I marital counseling, when, I get ready, when we get ready to talk about doing the wedding, I say to the bride, now listen, The future bride, I say, this is the deal. This is your wedding. The most important person in the room that day will be you, the bride. The second most important person will be the bridegroom. The third most important is me because I got to sign the license. No, I'm just kidding. I don't say that. The most important person is the bride. And so we go to the wedding rehearsal. And you know what happens to brides when they go to the wedding rehearsal? they have a momentary lapse of intelligence because they're nervous, they're scared, they're frustrated. Most brides, the most organized persons in the world, I've seen them go to wedding rehearsals and just become a puddling mess in terms of making decisions. But I tell them, listen, when we come to the wedding rehearsal, if there's confusion about, who should stand here, or how fast everybody should go, or what time the song should start, or whatever. I'm going to turn to one person, and I'm going to ask you a question. And I turn to the bride, and I say, what do you want? Now, if the bride says, I'd like to ask my mom, then that's okay. Mom has permission to speak. But at, until that moment, mom does not have permission to speak. And I'm serious because one time I did a wedding rehearsal and I finally walked up to a mother-in-law and I said, ma'am, I'm going to tell you one more time. This is not your wedding. It's her wedding. And I know you love her and I know you want the best for her. But it's up to her. And actually, if she wants you to sit in the back, you will sit in the back. We didn't have any more problems in that rehearsal because that mother-in-law found her place. But it's the same thing that James is trying to say. You know, we, we want front and center. We want this. We position ourselves to do this and all these kinds of things. And if it's out of God's order, it's out of God's order. And he's basically saying, this is not your wedding, this is his church. And your responsibility is to be in the place that you're supposed to be to bring pleasure and purpose to Him. Which means it affects how we relate to one another in living that out. So, as I finish this morning, I want to ask you three questions that are kind of like a prayer. First question is have I given myself the benefit of doubt but refused to give it to my brother or sister? Have I given myself the benefit of doubt but I refuse to give it to my brother or sister? The second question, have I made excuses for my shortcomings but am I intolerant of other shortcomings? Have I made excuses for my shortcomings, but am I intolerant of others' shortcomings? And the last question is, have I judged my brothers and sisters according to the letter of the law while letting myself off the hook? Have I judged my brothers and sisters according to the letter of the law while letting myself off the hook and expecting them to give me grace while I give them the law. If that's the case, then those are the things we need to change. We need to clean up our mess. We clean up our mess by following the way of Jesus. And I just end with this passage from Colossians chapter 3. It comes out of the Passion Translation. Before I read it, I want you to take a minute. Look around turn around, turn around, look at your neighbors, look at all their flaws, see if they got their hair out of place. You know, look at them, all their warts and wrinkles. Maybe you're looking at one person going, oh yeah, they're here today, shoot. <laughs> and then you're looking around and realizing certain ones aren't here and you're going, yes, they're not here today. So with that in mind, listen to these words. Tolerate the weaknesses of those in the family of faith. Forgiving one another in the same way you have been graciously forgiven by Jesus Christ. If you find fault with someone, release this same gift of forgiveness to them. For love, the royal love, the royal law of love is supreme and it must flow through each of us As virtuous, love becomes the mark of true maturity. I want to encourage us to imagine a place where our passion is to lay down all of our own personal agendas, except for drawing near to God. Drawing as near to God as we can and making hosting His presence the greatest priority of our life. Would you bow your heads as we pray? Lord, all of us need to remember how much grace has been poured out on us. Help us remember this morning how much grace you've given to us, Lord. How much how much freedom you've given to us. How much accommodation you've given to us for who we are. Thank you for calling us to your sons and daughters and letting us identify with you as Father. And as we relate to one another as we relate to people we work with, we relate to our neighbors We relate to family members. Help us to exercise the royal law and to love each other with that same kind of grace and that same kind of freedom. We ask, Lord, that you would fill us once again with wonder. Wonder of what you've done in pouring out your life for us. Wonder of what you've done in giving us the power of the resurrection to live the life that we live. And help us to walk in the Spirit of Christ as we carry Your Spirit to other people's lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand together? The last words of that song we just sang say, I will adore you. And I think it's appropriate for us to receive these words as you leave. Just put your hands out in front of you. These are words that Jesus spoke in John 15, and I'm sure James had them in mind when he wrote what he did to the churches that he was writing to. Jesus said, You show that you are my intimate friends when you obey everything that I command you. I never called you servants because a master doesn't confide in his servants, and servants don't always understand what the master is doing. But I call you my most intimate friends. For I reveal to you everything that I've heard from my Father. You didn't choose me, but I've chosen and commissioned you to go into the world to bear fruit. And your fruit will last because whatever you ask of my Father for my sake, He will give it to you. So this is my parting command. Love one another deeply. Love one another deeply. Go in His love and His grace and His peace. Amen.